Um, it's my delight to open God's Word with you this morning. If you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, we are going to look at the same passage that Andrew looked at last week. Uh, Andrew unpacked it wonderfully for us. And if you didn't, um, haven't had a chance, weren't there, I'd really recommend going back and listening to it. Uh, I've listened to it three times and found it very edifying each time. Um, so I really encourage you to go and listen to that. Um, Andrew unpacked it last week. This week, I want to apply it. I want to say, if this is true, if Paul's prayer that he gives us in Ephesians 3 is a true and accurate depiction of what the Lord wants to do in our lives, then I want to ask, what does it mean for us? How do we respond to Paul's prayer? Before I read it out to you, consider how you would have felt if you were receiving this prayer and you were part of the Ephesian church. Remember, Paul is an elder statesman, New Testament Christianity. He had a part in founding this church, in planting this church. Some of them would have known him personally. He was a, a father in, a fa- in the faith to many of them. And he loved them. And they hear, after he's spent chapter one outlining this beautiful vision of of their own individual salvation, and then he spends chapter two outlining the, the miracle of the church... Then they hear what he is praying for them. Remember, he's on his bended knees, in his prison cell, interceding for the people that he loves. And what is he saying? What What is his prayer? In a nutshell, he is praying for the deep, transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. As I read this prayer to you, I want to ask you the question, do you desire this deep, transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you share Paul's ambition here? Let me read it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family or every father in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So what is this letter about let me recap what, we, what Andrew took us through last week. I think you can see this letter at four levels. The first thing you must see is that this is a prayer for strengthening. You hear it in verse 16. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Andrew said last week, we are weaker than we realize. And the hope for change in the Christian life is not bullish strength and self-control from within yourself. Actually, no, the posture of the Christian life is walking in weakness, being strengthened by the Holy Spirit, being strengthened and walking in dependence with the living God. 
So it speaks of strengthening. Second thing, it speaks, where, where is the focus of this prayer? What, what is he talking about? Your inner being. Strengthen with power through his spirit in your inner being. What's he describing? Your inner being, it's the, the person who you are on the inside. It's your inner life, your inner man, we might say. Your emotions, your desires, your thought life, the, the mental track that goes round your head, the different things that are going on inside you. That is, that is what Paul is, is focusing on. That is the area that Paul is asking to be changed and transformed. This, the focus of this prayer is deep change, not superficial change on the surface, superficial behavior modification. This is about changing you deeply from the inside. The third thing this prayer is about, it's about strengthening, about deep change, but notice the essence or the the grounds of that change is an encounter with the love of Christ. You see verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and then he speaks about being knowing, deeply knowing the the kind of a love that is almost immeasurable, beyond, um, almost beyond conception, saying the way you are changed, the, the, the way the Holy Spirit transforms you from the inside out is a deep encounter with the immeasurable love of Christ. That is what Paul is asking for. Now, Andrew gave this amazing quote that has stayed with me all week. A person who really knows the love of God, their struggles with themselves have come to an end. A person who really knows the love of God, their struggles with themselves have come to an end. It says there are all sorts of ways that our lives present dysfunction when we are not engaged with the reality, with the full gamut of the love of Christ. Insecurities, desire to impress other people, uh, a sense of um, fear, anxiety. You could go on saying, actually, no, what we need, what Paul is praying for here is a deep encounter with the immeasurable love of Christ. And that is the answer to so many of our problems and our insecurities. So it's strengthening in our, inside us through the love of Christ. And then finally, this is about a work of the Holy Spirit. This is not just describing uh, intellectual apprehension of this truth. He speaks at the end of the prayer of a love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So you can't just do that. Just reading it, just, just intellectually intuiting that, that, that God loves you is, is more. So this is more than that. That's a really important thing. But this is more than that. It's speaking of being filled with the fullness of God. It's speaking about the experiential work of the Holy Spirit. It's speaking about saying this is not something you can just kind of study your way to. Actually, you need something of God's active work in your life. And that is what Paul is asking for. That's what he's praying for, for the people of God. And you know, the problem is, as I reflect on this passage this week, my deep abiding conviction is, that many of us don't want this, that many of us do not hunger like Paul for this deep transforming work of the Holy Spirit. When we hear this prayer, when we see this vision of Paul's confidence in God's ability to change us deeply from the inside, when we see the, the extent and the, and the depth of what God wants to do in us, our hearts should leap, but they don't. Many of us don't desire this like Paul does, and so I want to explore that with you. But before we do that, I want to just speak for a moment to those of you who aren't Christians. 
If you're not a Christian here, you kind of just, this just feels very spiritual, doesn't it? It feels quite irrelevant to my life. If I don't believe in this, you say, what on earth does this have to say to modern 21st century Londoners? And I want to say, actually, this connects with the deepest longings of the secular Londoner. Think about how we live in a therapeutic age. What, you know, there's an explosion of the amount of people who are seeking therapy, willing to pay lots of money for someone to come and diagnose the malady of my soul. I don't want to speak about that trend, but what is interesting to me is it almost implicit within the explosion of that um, phenomenon, that sociological phenomenon, is actually an acceptance that within us there is a deep malady of the soul, that we are disordered, that we are a mess of different desires and emotions, and we need someone to help us to sort through that and to understand that. And we're so full of harmful desires, so much full of a tendency to self-sabotage and harm ourselves, of disconnected from what of the reality. And the Christian faith agrees, but it says the problem is deeper. It says you're onto something, there's something truth in what you're saying, but actually the problem is deeper. This is this problem of brokenness our culture would describe. Actually, we'd describe it as the problem of sin. And the problem really is that you're disconnected from the source of life. You know, you've heard of um, modern meditation. The, the, what we might say is often what you need to do is detach. I need to detach from the world around me. Christianity would say, no, it's a complete opposite problem. Actually, you have a detachment problem from the living God. And what you need is to attach to the source of life. It takes it completely the other way around. It says there is a malady within us. And actually, when you come to Christ, when you accept him as Lord of your life, you are inviting the great healer to come in and set to order everything that is broken to a world that is longing for self-mastery and transformation of the self. We say, come and meet the great healer who comes to set in order everything that is in disorder. Isn't that what we're longing for? The second thing I think is how this connects with, with, with you, if you're not a Christian here, is it speaks a lot about the love of Christ, this immeasurable love that you cannot quantify. Now, I would wager, if you're not a Christian here, that you would agree with me that human beings have a deep longing to be loved. It's, it's, it's in, in, you can see it from your, yourself and from people around you. In fact, we'd say, go further than that and say, without love, human beings break down. Even you see this in premature babies, that if they receive more cuddles, more physical attachment, basically physical love, as a baby, they grow better. You see this the other way around, that with people who have loneliness, have a lack of love in their lives, they actually, uh, that has all sorts of physical health costs. It says we are wired to experience love as human beings. And I would say, what makes sense of that deep wiring, that deep longing for love in every human heart, except that at the center of the universe is a God who loves you and intended you for a relationship with himself? It says we live in a world where that love, that desire for love is channeled into a romantic obsession, into a conviction that I need to be in a relationship to be happy. But actually we're saying behind that romantic desire is a longing for love that ultimately is satisfied by the love of the living God. G.K. Chesterton um, said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. We might update it and say, every man who goes on Tinder looking for a no-strings-attached encounter is looking for God. That is behind the restlessness, the search for romantic fulfillment, perhaps more than that, actually is a longing for the love that this prayer is all about. I'd go even further and say, actually, what you've got to see at the beginning of this prayer is it's a prayer to the Father of Fathers, the Father who sits above everyone. 
And our society represents a deep malady in disconnecting, being disconnected from the Father who made them. And actually, we see the symptoms of this cosmic orphanhood in our culture in all sorts of ways. The, the bubbling up an overwhelming sense of anxiety that pervades our culture, I believe, is at least partly a symptom of that cosmic orphanhood. That we have detached ourselves from the Father in heaven who's intended to be the one who soothes our anxieties. And so we experience uh, uh, the, the anxiety of being like an orphan. Of saying, where will I run to? Where will I go to bring my, the natural, everyday struggles of life? So this prayer actually shows us that Christ connects with our deepest longings. I believe the Christian faith is true, and it's based on a set of facts and the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. But it's not just true historically, it's also true to life. It connects with the deepest longings of our hearts and explains and makes sense of those longings. But now let me return to the question for you if you're a Christian. Do you want this? Do you want the deep and transforming work that Christ wants to bring in our lives and Paul is praying for us? I think there's a few reasons why we don't want this. One is you don't know what Paul is describing here. You have a thin and superficial vision of the Christian life. You think of being a Christian as agreeing with the idea that Jesus is God and that he died for your sins, what we might call the gospel, but you know very little of the depth to which Christ wants to come in and change your inner life. For some of you, I believe your vision of the Christian life is too small. That being a Christian is far more than just coming to church and coming to life group, as essential as those practices are. Actually, Christ wants to come and reorder every part of your inner life. And I want to show you the depth of change that he wants to bring. That's one of some of you. Some of you, I just think, don't desire the work of the Holy Spirit. We, and do you know why? I think it's because of low expectations of God. It's past disappointment. Or maybe we just don't even trust Christ to come in and do that deep work that Paul envisages for us. I believe that Christ's followers are to be hungry for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and confident of God's power. That is the people that we are meant to be. I want to, I want to provoke that hunger in you this morning. And finally, there's some of you who don't know how. You walked away from last week saying, yes, I want more of this, more of this work, more of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, but you're not sure how. And I can't give you a formula today that says, do this, and you will experience a profound sense of the love of Christ in your heart in the moment, but I want to show you the practices that underpin a deep communion with Christ, a deep relationship with Christ that will invite the deep work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Let's take each one of those in turn then. So first of all, deep change. Do you understand the scope and the depth of the work that Christ wants to do in and through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Too often we settle for the superficial. See, the image in this passage is describing um, Christ coming into your house. Imagine your inner life is like a house. And it's saying Christ is wanting to come in and to dwell in that house. So it says, verse uh, 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And of course, there's something sense of the, working, the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. But actually, I think really what we're talking about is the idea that Christ wants to come over, come in and take over your inner life. Imagine for a moment your inner life was like a house. 
It's like, it's not just that Christ just wants to be on the doorpost uh, saying this is Jesus' house. It's actually wants to come in and renovate every room in the house. And so first of all, some of you are, are, are blocking that off. You're saying, Christ, you can have this part of my life, but you can't have my relational life. I would like to really rather continue doing this thing that I know isn't of you, and I want to kind of keep that door closed. So some of you are, are just saying, whether it's your emotional life, your working life, parts of your life that you are basically not letting Christ into. But it speaks of, of a deep renovation that Christ wants to do. He doesn't want to just come and live in the house. It's actually wants to come in and kind of strip out the wallpaper, strip out all, the, all, the, all the, that old sign that was on the living room, li, living room of, your, of your inner life, so to speak, and say, that doesn't belong here anymore. That thought pattern that you had before you came to Christ, or actually that's just sprung up today, <laughs> doesn't belong here. It doesn't reflect the reality that Christ is Lord of this house. And so Christ wants to come in and, uh, and to reshape your inner life your emotions, your desires, your thought life. This is the opposite of a kind of superficial behavior modification where you avoid a few particular sins and you kind of agree with a few key doctrines. He wants to reshape your whole reality. He wants to reshape how you interact with people, that they're no longer enemies or people to be competed with, but people to be loved. Your emotional life. That actually creates a certain level of resilience, actually, in your emotional life because you are no longer thrown around and tossed and turned by the events of life. There is a stability and a security that comes with knowing that Christ is in the house, that your circumstances can, can change dramatically, but there is a reality that Christ has entered into the house that, that cannot be taken away from you. Or how you deal with loss puts a, a, a silver lining around every cloud changes even your deepest desires, what you're longing for. You cannot allow Christ to come in and just kind of superficially change the name on the door, say, this is, I'm now a follower of Christ. You must change your deepest desires and what brings you joy. It comes back to what Andrew said last week, that Christianity is not just a framework, not just a set of principles to apply to your life, but it's a new relational presence. Christ has come to enter into your life. And the, the, the work of being changed by God is the constant encounter between the new reality of Christ that is present in your life and everything that bubbles up within you, everything that goes on in your life. And so we must, as Christians, invite Christ into the deepest thoughts and invite him to reshape how we understand and engage with the world. Let me give you one example. Self-pity. Some, you might just think, this week I was going on in my life, and you think, I, actually, I was just kind of grumbling. I was grumbling about, you know, maybe your uh, a working situation, like a difficult boss, or maybe your living situation. I'm not talking about myself here, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, but your mental skyline is gray, and you just feel a bit, just feel like you're going through the motions, and everything sucks. And you think, what does it look like for Christ to enter into that reality? What does it look like for, for, for Christ to genuinely be present in your life and to be more than that, to be the Lord of your life? How does that change your mental skyline? It doesn't change the circumstances immediately, but it changes how you view those circumstances. Actually, as you remember that Christ is present in your life in that moment, the backdrop changes. The gray cloud turns to sunlight as you consider the reality that, that Christ is in here. That, that you have a hope that will transcend the difficult work and working situation or your living situation, and that you, one day you will be with Christ in eternity. And his presence in your life 
says actually that he is interested in your life and has plans and purpose for your life, that even if you feel like you're day-to-day drudgery, actually this is not the end of the story. And actually as you experience his love in your life, that changes how you approach your boss. Actually, anger or resentment turns to love. What has been the predominant emotion in your life this week? What has been the, the mental track that you have returned to time and again? Fear, anxiety, frustration, perhaps just a feeling of overwhelmness. The question you have to ask yourself is, what does the presence of Christ in my life have to say to that feeling? To that sense of overwhelmness says, no, I have a father who is sovereignly in control. I need not feel overwhelmed by these circumstances. To the one who is anxiety, who's, who's feeling anxious, you, you have one who wants to come in and bring you the felt experience of peace in that moment because you can bring your anxieties to him. The one who's, who's, whose life feels like full of despair, you say, no, Christ wants to come in and enter in and bring a tangible sense of hope. This is not about denying our emotions. It's about bringing the full reality of our hearts to God. I was chatting to someone this week, or, or yeah, this week, and um, there were difficult circumstances in their lives. And, and the first thing we just said was, look, can we just bring this to God? And we found themselves like, bringing, like crying angrily and frustrated in, in the midst of their circumstances to God. And you know, I felt like that was success. Actually, the first thing we can do is bring the full extent of who we are to the living God, to live a genuine, honest prayer life where you bring the reality of what's going on in your heart and allow him to come in and speak to that reality. This is, I believe, what the Bible talks about when it talks about taking every thought captive. Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If you want to obey Christ, the battle to obey Christ begins in your mind, begins in the mental Thought life that is going round your head time and again. It is no use just trying to change your behavior. You must allow Christ to go deeper. You must allow him to take every thought captive. As I reflected on this sermon, there were moments as I did it, I thought, no, that emotion doesn't belong here. That feeling isn't part of the fact that Christ is Lord of my life. Are you allowing Christ to come in and take every thought captive? This is not Soviet re-education camp where you feel like as you hear it, you think, oh my gosh, every thought, suddenly, that's not of Christ, that's not of Christ. It's not like that. It's actually allowing Christ to come in and liberate you. It's a free, this, is, this is part of the freedom that Christ brings into our lives as he allows him to come in and put his finger on that and say, that, that anxiety, it doesn't belong here. Bring it to me. Take it. Take it to the cross. As you, that insecurity, bring it to me. Take it away. It doesn't belong here. It's a, it's a liberty that comes for encountering the real presence of Christ and allowing him to reshape every part of your life. Consider what kind of people we would be if, we, if this prayer was answered. Consider what it would look like. Consider the kind of people that you become as this reality takes place in your life. You become secure people, rooted in the reality of Christ's love, saturated on a daily basis, such that you're no longer hidebound by the constant fear of what other people think of you. Imagine the kind of things you might do if you are no longer controlled by the fear of other people. 
Imagine the way that God might use you if you were no longer worried and consumed by the opinions of others. That is what liberty looks like, and that is what comes as we taste the real, tangible love of Christ. This is not a one-time thing. That is what you've got to realize here. Every new day comes, new insecurities, new feelings, new, new wrong desires emerge in my heart. Like an onion layer, that every, you kind of find a new layer of sin, new wrong motives going on in your heart. That is not surprising to the living God. He knows the state of our hearts. But instead, as we do that, we come back to the tangible presence of Christ. We return to this immeasurable love and allow Christ to come in and rework those thoughts and desires as they emerge. We'd be full of security with no obsession about what people think of us and freedom to pursue his purposes. We'd be full of radical strength. Not a strength that is kind of a physical strength, but a strength of perseverance, a resilience to keep walking through trials because we know as we know as we know that our Father in heaven loves us and he's got our backs, that we can walk through the difficult circumstances of life. A resilience that we'd have strong affections for the living God, that we wouldn't be fickle, loving him one day and ignoring him the next. Instead, we go back to him to say, God, my heart is cold. My heart is cold and I need your help to love you. That is what it means to walk in dependence, to say, I can't even love you the way you want me to without your help. There's a return, there's a resilience, a strength, a security, and there's even a joy. The way Christians take over the world to transform the world is that people look at our lives and they say, there is a joy about you, there is a lightness and a freedom about you that I envy and admire. And that joy comes from the fact that the reality of Christ is present in your life, whatever the, circum whatever the challenges you're facing. Christ shines into all your thoughts that if you've lost everything, you can still say, I have Christ. I have Christ. I've lost everything, but I have Christ. And that brings a, a joy, a rugged and resilient joy. Don't we want this? Don't we want to be the radically resilient, secure, and beautiful people that Paul is praying for and that Christ intends us to be? This is how the living God is glorified. You saw this in Ephesians 5. It says, to him be the glory. Beautiful Christians full of joy and strength and resilience because they are saturated in the presence of God and returning to him in this deep communion. They are the kind of people who bring God glory, who glorify God in their weakness. So deep change. Second of all, deep desire. When we see the scale of the work that Christ wants to do in us, we must ask, do we really want it? Like Paul, do we desire the deep work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? I'm convinced that Christ wants disciples who desire it and ask for it. So why might we not want it? Why don't we pray like Paul? Well, first reason, I think, some of us have a superficial vision of the Christian life, and what's more, we actually like it. We kind of like the fact that Christ doesn't come in and invade every part of our lives. We kind of like the fact that we can put him on the doorpost and not allow him into every room. It seeks, it suits our, our flesh. It feels, feels kind of costly, doesn't it? To allow Christ to come in and shape you every day with your, in, with your desires and your thoughts. That feels like a lot of effort. And you know, I suspect some of you might actually need to ask yourself, do I trust him to come into every room in the house? Do I trust him? Some of you are holding back because you don't trust him. You want just a superficial relationship. You think, if you were really to come in and to reshape me, I'd be a totally different person. My life would look radically different. And I want to say, yes, yes, it would. That's the point. That's the point. 
It is costly. It will, you will look radically different. If I think about the man I was 14 years ago and the desires that I had and the purposes of my life before I came to Christ, I was ra- on a radically different trajectory. And my life looks radically different now, but I don't regret it for a moment. Why? Because, because I'm coming to the good father who has good plans and purposes for his children, who will discipline his children. They will even experience suffering at his hand, but he does it because he loves them. You have to see that his plans and purposes for your life are so worth you willing, surrendering every part of your life to him. Second reason why we don't pursue this deep work of the Holy Spirit, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency, this is a great enemy of the Christian life, brothers and sisters. That you kind of think, you know what, I can kind of do it on my own. Isn't that true? Partly because we've restricted the Christian life to meaning go to church and go to life group. But actually, you don't need the Holy Spirit's help to do that. You just need to put the alarm on and come to church. That's that's not hard. But the minute you start saying, actually, I'm going to go with Christ on his mission... I'm going, to invite, I'm going to love on people around me. I'm going to seek to find opportunities to make disciples and um, point, speak of Christ to the people around me. As soon as, you, as soon as you try to be a distinctive presence for Christ, wherever he's placed you, that's where you need his help. So some of us are, are, are in self-reliant, self-sufficiency mode because we haven't really got the full gamut of what Christ is calling us to. But you know how we can see our self-sufficiency? And it pains me to say this because I see it in my own life all too often, prayerlessness. There is no, it's like you can't, you can't get wiggle out of it, <laughs> basically. If you don't pray very regularly, then it's kind of proof that you don't really think you need God's help. And you know what? It's not just um, that your prayerlessness is a sign of your self-sufficiency, but it feeds your self-sufficiency. Because you basically, you go through some days or weeks you know, without, without really praying, without really bringing the circumstances of your life to, to God, and then you kind of start to believe the lie that you don't really need his help. Do you think about your life? Do you think about what's going on? Do you think, oh, I need to do that? Oh, this, you know, you probably all do that, don't you? You try and solve the problems in your life. But do you pray about those problems? Do you say, God, actually, I am really wrestling with this hard thing and I don't know what to do about it. Can you help me? That would be a sign that you want to live in some sense of dependence on the living God. So self-sufficiency, superficial vision of the Christian life. Third one, busyness. The reason why we do not, and by the way, parents, you just need to, Switch off at this point, okay? <laughs> no guilt for parents around busyness. Just, just ignore me. Ignore this point. I'll, come, I'll, I'll let you know when it's come, uh, safe for you to listen again. Um, <laughs> busyness. This sense of deep communion with Christ takes time. You cannot just short-circuit it. It's not like a, just a, like a fervent prayer meeting, and you're just like, yes, yes, I love God. Yes, okay. Actually, it's, a, it's an ongoing work of deep transformation, of bringing the whole self to God and allowing him to change you. That takes time to dwell and commune with him. Please, brothers and sisters, let's not fill our lives with so much activity that our souls wither and die. God doesn't want dry sponges who try to do things for him. You will become of no use. I find this as a pastor so often. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I fill my life with so many different pastoral appointments that I'm not then communing with the living God. I'll be of no use in that next appointment unless I'm coming back to the Father. What an error we make time and again that we fill our lives full of activity saying we want to serve Christ without first coming back and saying communion is the main object of the Christian life. Oswald Chambers uh, says this, the main thing about Christianity is not the work we do but the relationship we maintain and the atmosphere produced by that relationship. That is all God asks us to look after and is the one thing that is being continually assailed. 
Take care of your relationship with Christ. Experience deep communion with him and everything else, leave it up to God. You'll be a much more loving and joyful person. You'll find opportunities to talk about him. All the other things that you want to do, they come from that communion. Let's not let busyness, busyness is such an enemy of the Christian life. I, I do believe that as one who struggles with it myself. Fourthly, write your parents back in. Low expectations of God. Seriously, this is big. I really believe this is the big problem here in our lack of spiritual hunger. Low expectations of God. Some of us are practical deists. We think of God as uh, the creator and the one who's given us salvation, but we don't believe he's practically involved in our lives today. Why do we have low expectations of God? Well, part of that, sometimes maybe you think, I've never experienced this. Well, that first of all, is not true. You have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. The very desire that you have to trust the Lord, the very belief that you have in your heart comes from his work in you. So it's, not, it's a lie to say the Spirit's not at work in you. That's the first thing. Actually, and actually, even the, every desire you have to conform your life to him is part of the Spirit's subtle and deep work in your life. Let's not confuse like a, a, a powerful worship time with the, with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Actually, God is at work in your life if you're a Christian. Thirdly, lowering scripture to our experience. I really believe this is a problem in the church in, at large. That we, take, we say, look, this is the New Testament vision of deep, transforming work of the Holy Spirit, of spiritual gifts in all the ways that God is at work. And then we look at our lives and say, no, that doesn't conform to that. We haven't experienced that. And what do we do? We lower scripture to our experience. And we say, basically, it can't be true because I haven't experienced it. Instead of allowing the New Testament vision of the full-bloodied work of the Holy Spirit, transforming us deeply, experiencing his power at work in our gatherings, and seeing us work, a work in, out, in us, through us, outside this room, and that should inspire us to pursue more of the work of the Holy Spirit, shouldn't it? Not less. Yes, we will experience disappointments. Yes, we live in a fallen world, and we are messy people. It's, only, it's not surprising that the work of the Holy Spirit that we see in the New Testament isn't quite tr- in our experience. But let the big vision of the New Testament inspire you towards it rather than shrink back. Or maybe you look at your life and you say, look at my life. There's no way the Holy Spirit's at work in me. What you're doing is confusing the struggle with sin, which, again, is no surprise to the living God that your heart is deceitful and that you have all sorts of different desires that aren't of him. But it doesn't mean we negate a high view of God's work and God's power to work in us. I want you to weigh all those different problems against Paul's deep confidence in this passage. See Paul's, that is the, this is the essence of this prayer. Paul has a high expectation of the living God. That according to the riches of his glory. Such is the love of God, he's saying. Goes on, it's in such a love that you need the Holy Spirit's help to grasp it. He prays that you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. This is not a man who's caveating his prayers. He has every expectation in God's work in your life. Go further than that. He even basically says you don't have the same expectations as you should. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He knows that you have low expectations. He's saying, don't you see, actually, God can do far more abundantly than you ask or think. Do not lower your expectation. Actually, if we look at the New Testament, we have a profound expectation of the deep work of the Holy Spirit. Think about it. Uh, Luke 11, Jesus' instructions to his disciples that I read out at the beginning of the morning service last week. It says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead of, excuse me, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to leave good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I just ask, why would Jesus put that instruction in Scripture and then not meet our requests for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Surely that instruction then exists, because he's saying, come and ask me. You do not have because you do not ask. Surely the most obvious application of this prayer is to be like Paul and come before the Father and say, Lord, we long for your work in us. Lord, I need your work in me. To come and ask for the abundant work of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is a loving church. I believe that. It's a really loving church. It's a generous church, and there's so many things that I love about this church. But how spiritually hungry are we? How spiritually hungry are we? Do we desire the deep work of the Holy Spirit? See it. Do we, does it, does it reflect, is it reflected in our prayer life together? Is it reflected in a passion for the presence of God and a desire for his deep work in us. I believe that was what God's intention and desire is for us as a family. Charismatic convictions aren't enough. Just believing in the work of the Holy Spirit isn't what this passage talks about, I don't believe. No, actually, what you need to do is ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Do we ask him? It's not a formula, by the way. I'm not saying when you ask him that you'll experience it immediately. The wind blows where he wills, effectively, that, that God will pour out his spirit in different ways. But my gosh, when I take the time, when my, it, it's the periods of my life when I've actively pursued the work of the Holy Spirit seem to also connect with the periods of my life where I've seen the work of the Holy Spirit in profound ways. I'll give you two examples. They are genuinely life-changing moments. One was a couple of years ago when we were preaching um, about the woman who poured the perfume over Jesus' feet. And as I prepared that message that week, I experienced the Spirit working in me and breaking off a man-pleasing tendency that I'd had with me for a few years. As I hadn't actually, when I come to faith, God had really given me a liberty. And then I, becoming a pastor, I just started to care what people think, care what the church thought far too much. And by the way, it's a terrible thing for a preacher to care what people think, because they'll modify the Word of God to, to please people. But I, 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 in that preparation time, in that week, as I meditated on that woman who poured the perfume over Jesus' feet in Mark 15, I think it is, as she um, has no, she basically doesn't care what the disciples are thinking. She's pouring out that perfume, anointing him for burial. You can go there and look at yourself. I experienced a profound sense of liberty that I believe to this day was the work of the Holy Spirit because I was different as a result. Well, two weeks ago in worship time, I honestly, I come into church sometimes as a, and you're thinking, I need to talk to that person and I'm not, I'm not leading or preaching, so I just, I'm mentally scheming. And <laughs> Those of you who know me think, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> um, and, you know, in that worship time, in that worship time, I just experienced a profound moment where Christ, in my mind's eye, I felt him coming to give me communion and him saying, come and eat with me and a calling back to deep communion that I'm speaking about. And honestly, it's, it definitely had an impact over the last two weeks. It's like a shift in me. I just I want, I want you to experience this. I can't promise that it will be in any way that I've spoken about, but I believe we must hunger and thirst for this work of the Holy Spirit in us as a people of God. Finally then, deep communion. 
I want us to pursue the work of the Holy Spirit. I want us to ask God for his work amongst us. But it's not just about asking the Holy Spirit to be at work in us. We have a part to play in inviting God to work in our lives by pursuing deep, ongoing communion with Christ. Let me give you a few practices that are about inviting this deep work in you. First one, deep prayer. Slow prayer. Think about it's like your prayer life could be like a, a snatched WhatsApp message where you receive a quick message from a friend and you kind of, in that moment, you're like, oh, that's nice. I remember them. I love them. And then you just kind of forget about them. Or, or, or your prayer life can be like a meal where you spend two hours talking with your friend and you spend time just in their presence and listening to them and, and, and kind of spending time together and, and just exchanging. And you think, I have met with that friend. Is your prayer life more like the snatched WhatsApp message where you're kind of like, God, help me today. Thanks, see you later. I've done that for the day. Or is it like actually allowing, taking the time to allow Christ to come in and speak to every part of your soul? Is it like more like a WhatsApp message or a meal with Christ? Prayer that speaks and listens, that speaks to him and invites him to come and speak to the reality. Honest prayer. As I spoke about that person who was just able to frust- pour out their angry frustrations with God. Is your prayer life Honest. Do you actually tell God what you really think and feel? Do you allow him to come in and speak to that reality? Real prayer brings the reality of our lives, our anger, our sadness, our pain. You see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, even. Jesus is bringing, is, is, it's, we are, is being honest in his prayer to the Father at that moment. You see it in the Psalms. As you're honest with God, you invite him to speak to that reality. Ultimately, what we're seeing is that prayer is not something that is like a kind of formula We're apprehending the reality of the living God. Deep calls to deep. As we pray, we kind of go on that journey of into the living God, and actually we've got a whole lifetime to explore his reality as we pray. I'm going to stop sounding like a hippie and move on. Deep prayer. Second of all, deep meditation on scripture. Do you allow the truth of God to sink deep into your soul? Reading the Bible has very little benefit unless you're consciously asking it to change you. We make, it's, it, being a student of Scripture is of less benefit unless you are actually inviting the living God to come and change you through the encounter with him and his voice in his word. That is what, why we read the Bible, to be changed, to understand more of the reality of who God is and to experience him speaking and changing us. We are attaching to God in that moment, I believe, as we read his Scriptures. Think about John 8, when Jesus says to the disciples about his words abiding in them. He says, so, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my words, if you dwell in my words, if you go down and settle into my words... As you allow my words to settle into you. As you allow the truth of Scripture to sink deeply. Maybe you spend half an hour reading and chewing over one verse and reflecting and meditating on it. And thinking, what does this mean for my life? What is God saying to me through this verse? What, is, what needs to change as a result of this? We read fast sometimes because we say, I want to understand the full book or this passage. And sometimes we read really slow. And say, God, I want you to change me with this verse. Come and speak to me as I meditate and ruminate on this. As you put yourself in the story, as you imagine yourself there in the scene, use your sense to say, what is happening here? What is God saying to me? 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them as they are, said to you, accept the word of Scripture and ponder it in your heart, as Mary did. That is all. That is meditation. Sometimes you don't need to analyze. You just need to come and allow God to change you as you reprehend and let his word sink deeply into your heart. So deep prayer, deep meditation on Scripture. Thirdly, deep confession. This is not just a personal one-to-one thing. Actually, the way I believe that God changes us is often in community. I suspect that just as some of us have a very superficial relationship with God, it may also be reflected in the superficiality of our relationships together. Is there a space in your life where you are 100% honest about the reality of your heart? Is there a space in your life where you are able to be honest, not because you're coming for some chastisement, but because you're coming to allow that person to speak the truth of God into the reality of your heart. It's like allowing the light of Christ to come into your life through the words of another, as they remind you of the gospel, as you expose the reality of your heart and say, actually, you know what? I've been full of self-pity this week, or I've been full of anger towards this person. And then they say, why? And you reflect, and you look deep, and you say, what's going on? What's really going on beneath the surface? And in those deep relationships, in those deep moments of confession, of bringing the reality of what's actually going on in our hearts to another, we are exposed. We, there's power in that moment of re- seeing the reality of our sin. And also we, we allow the light of Christ to come deep and speak into that reality. Some of you have no experience of this. Your cr- Christian life is so individual. And what you need to see is there's a great power in opening yourself up and allowing the truth of God to come in and speak to that reality through another person. Are you living with a mask? Are you living with a facade? Are you hiding your deepest struggles? Brothers and sisters, there's no, that's just not going to help you. You need to experience deep confession and deep relationships. And so take this all together. We have a vision of what I believe Paul has for us here as the people of God. A people who grasp the deep change that God wants to do in us who see and desire deeply the work of the Holy Spirit and who pursue deep communion with him. That is Paul's vision. That's his prayer. And that's Christ's vision for us as the disciples. Andrew ended last week's sermon by saying, there is more. There is more of the reality of God. He's calling us deeper. Will you come? Will you come deeper? Perhaps some of you say, look, actually I recognize Christ is not really speaking into these thoughts and emotions and desires. And I want him to come in and take over my inner life. Christ, will you come in and reshape how I see everything? Some of you say, yeah, I resonate with that sense of a lack of the Holy Spirit's, a lack of desire for the Holy Spirit's work in my life. God, will you come and help me to desire? God, I need your help even to desire your work in me. That would be a good prayer today. I want more of you. Thirdly, there might be some of you who say, I'm done with superficialities. I hear and see this deep communion that Christ is calling me to, and I want it. Lord, help us. You might say, Lord, help us to foster genuine, deep communion. See Paul's great promise here. See his great conviction of the depth of God's work in our lives. And respond.